other than you.
Thank you, worship team. Thank you for bringing us into this spirit of God this morning. Good morning, all. And I greet you in the name of Jesus Christ, who provides the peace. May his shalom rest upon you this day. Susan, will you start us off in prayer? So, Father, we thank you because you are so beautiful. You're absolutely wonderful. And there's nobody like you. And, Father, we want you today. We want your presence. We want your words. We want the words that you speak that are spirit and that are life. And, Lord, I pray for every person that's listening, every person under the sound of my voice, God, that you would speak your words into their hearts today, Father, that they would hear from you however you choose to do it, Lord. Father, I pray that you would bring light into the areas of darkness, that you would bring clarity where there's been confusion. Father, we pray that the work of the enemy would be pushed back and renounced completely and that you would reign in our hearts and our lives. Lord, that you would teach us, that you would instruct us in the way that we should go. Because with you is the path of life. And in your light, we see light. So Lord, let there be light today in our hearts, in our minds, in our souls, in our emotions. Touch us in the deepest places of our, of our beings, God, so that we can be more free, we can be more clean, and we can receive the fullness of the forgiveness, of the cleansing, of the restoration that you died to give us. In Jesus' name. Amen. Today we are covering the topic of confession. This is the third part in a series of four messages on prayer throughout the month of May. So far we have covered praise, prayers focusing on worship, thank you, prayers focusing on gratitude, and today we'll be covering, whoops, my bad, prayers on confession. Next week, the topic will be please, focus on, focusing on supplication. Some of the key scriptures this morning, so you can look at them later if you want to write these down. Genesis 3, 2 Samuel 11 to 12, Psalms 32 and 51, 1 John 1 through 9, James 5.16, and Psalms 103.10-12. As we start today, we recognize that the topic of confession comes from different, people look at it from different backgrounds. So on the offset, I'd like to think it's important to start with a question. When you hear the word confession, what does that conjure up inside of you? Well, I have to admit that I come to this topic with some baggage. Uh, so in my childhood years, I was exposed to lots of hellfire and brimstone preaching um, that was accompanied by a lot of guilt and condemnation and shame. And um, when the sinner's prayer was offered, um, I prayed it every time as if it was the first time because I didn't have any confidence that any of them stuck. Uh, and so that's kind of the background that I come to this topic of confession with. 
that I've had to work through over the years. Yeah, I grew up hearing that confession was good for the soul. That you needed to ask for forgiveness of your sins and was more of check the box and move on. I know personally at times confession can be very painful. Sometimes it is the last thing that I want to do. So what is your first reaction when you know that you've done something wrong? I think this is a really diagnostic question, and it says a lot about what you think about God and what you think about yourself. Yeah, my first reaction depends on the relationship. Sometimes it's to apologize right away, and other times I avoid the opportunity to confess. I think if I'm really honest, a lot of the time uh, my reaction is still to hide that I want to hide. I, I want to pretend it wasn't there and I want to wish it was better and kind of run. Um, and it turns out that I come to that um, naturally because that's what Adam and Eve did in the garden. Um, we see uh, in the end of chapter 2, in verse 25, that they were in the garden and they were naked and they were unashamed. But after they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the very one tree in the garden that they were not supposed to eat, up, eat from, they had access to everything else in the garden. Just this one tree that God said, do not eat from it. And they ended up eating from it. And after that, everything changed. And we see this pattern of shame, fear, and control take a hold right away. So they're suddenly recognized they're naked. They, there is a shame that comes there that uh, they didn't have before. Uh, and they were afraid, and they run. They cut and run from God. Um, and they also try to take control. They try to fix the problem themselves, and they make fig leaves for themselves to try to cover up their nakedness. And John, uh, God, he comes looking for them in the midst of their shame. And I love that because he's also coming for us today and all the time, looking for us in the midst of the things that we are most ashamed about. And God comes to them in the cool of the day and he asks them a very direct question. Did you eat from that tree that I told you not to eat from? And Adam and Eve do not answer that directly. Adam says, the woman that you gave me... <laughs> She's the one. She's the guilty one. He blames Eve. And Eve is no better. She turns to the serpent and she says, he caused me to do it. So there's this blame game and nobody is owning up to what they did wrong. And God, he has to come and he has to make coats of skin for them to put on. He gets rid of those fig leaves because they aren't going to do the job. Blood has to be shed for their, the atonement of their sins, just like blood has to be shed uh, for the atonement of our sins, even to this day. And the consequences of that sin were extremely dire. We're still feeling the fallout today, thousands of years later. Later on, uh, we see a similar pattern playing out in the life of David. Uh, when he committed that sin with Bathsheba, the sin of adultery with Bathsheba, and it's shared uh, in great depth in 2 Samuel 11 and 12. It's really striking how much airtime is given to the life of David in Scripture. He gets half of the book of, second, of 1 Samuel and then all of the book of 2 Samuel and then many of the chapters of the Chronicles as well. 
And it's like God really wanted to depict um, the good, the bad, and the ugly of David's life. And this is part of the ugly. Um, the Bible makes it clear that David's adultery was not in ignorance. He knew exactly that she was, Bathsheba was Uriah's wife, and he did it anyway. Um, it was not just adultery, but it was betrayal. Because Uriah, who was Bathsheba's husband, was one of David's mighty men. It makes that clear in 2 Samuel 23:39, And that might explain, actually, the proximity of Bathsheba and Uriah's house to the palace where David could look out from his veranda and see their house. Uh, Bathsheba ends up conceiving. And David, he goes to great measures to try to cover up that sin. And so it's his version of the fig leaves, the same from the garden that we inherited that kind of response from Adam and Eve. And ultimately, he gives orders to have Uriah killed in battle. And the scriptures make clear that the death of Uriah was not just manslaughter, it was first-degree murder. Um, it wasn't just that Uriah got killed, but along with him in the battle, the, the scholars estimate about eight to nine men also died with him. And David's response uh, to this is just shockingly casual. Um, he says to Joab, his head of the army, he said, don't let this bother you, Joab. You know, the sword devours one as well as the other. And after Uriah's death, um, he makes Bathsheba his wife, and then she bore him a son. And so from David's standpoint, maybe everything was taken care of. On the surface, it's all good, right? Um, the Bible scholars say that it was probably over a year um, that David was in this state of non-repentance um, before he actually repented before God for this sin. And this all gives me great pause because David is described in Scripture as a man after God's own heart. And here we see how his heart was so hardened, hardened against his sins, against even shed blood that he himself had shed. But the, the last verse in uh, 2 Samuel 11, verse 27, it's very, very telling. It says, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And when we try to cover up, when we try to rely on our own means to deal with the fallout of our sins, it displeases God. And just as David, we can often find ourselves in a situation where we are in denial of our, of our sin. And it says in 1 John 1, verse 8, it says, If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. And then in verse 10, If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Let's just take a, a step here and look at confession or confess. According to the dictionary, it has two meanings. A formal statement admitting that one is guilty of a crime. <clears throat> I think this is how many of us think about confession. We need to admit a wrong that we, and be forgiven. The next question that arises out of that is, what is a wrong? Who gets to decide what a wrong is? Is confessing the wrong enough? What about repentance? The other meaning of confession I found is a statement setting out essential religious doctrine. 
As I've dove deeper into the word and the meaning over the years about confession, I was starting to wonder, where do I see the word confess in Scripture? And it took me straight to Romans 10, 9 through 10. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Well, that fits a meaning of essential religious doctrine to me. The more I dive into understanding confession, the more I find the dictionary missed an additional part of what it means to confess. The confession does not stand alone for a believer. That after I confess, I must also need to repent. A quote from Dalton Blankenship. Confession is more than whoops, my bad, and repentance is more than, I will try not to do that again. True confession is admitting that we have sinned against God himself and his holy standard. True repentance is seeing the destructiveness of sin in our own lives and those around us, as well as to our relationship with God and changing the way we think and behave. Heartfelt confession and repentance says, this is my sin, and I will do everything that I can to make the area of my life obedient to Jesus. Anyone can confess, but only believer changes. Confession and repentance are critical to the relationship that we have with God. That they have to go together. You can confess, but if your heart does not change, how does that get you closer to God? If you repent, but do not confess, what has changed? Do you even see the action that you repented on as something that takes you away from God? Confession is the start of repentance. That the key doctrine that comes out of confession is to repent. The best way to explain this is sharing a major part of my life right now. I fell about eight feet and tore my ACL, my MCL, my meniscus back on December 1st. I had surgery on February 10th this year and still working through the process of healing. To heal, I need to embrace the pain of movement and bending. There are two positions that cause me the most discomfort. Bending the knee and putting the leg completely straight. I have learned to lean into the pain, knowing that on the other side will be freedom. But that does not mean I enjoy it, even look forward to it, and even knowing that this leads to freedom. Extending the leg is a completely passive exercise. I prop my leg up, put a pad underneath my heel, and lean back and straighten the leg and try to ignore the pain. This is kind of like confession. I can get over the pain by saying, I am sorry, and then relax and go about my day. Just a little time, a few remorseful words, and I am good. Legs straight and ready to go. 
Then there's the bending of the knee as far as I can. You start by laying on your back next to a wall, put your foot on the wall, and slowly slide your foot down the wall until you feel the pain. Then you hold that position and try to slide it down even further to improve the bend in the knee. This exercise takes work. Perseverance, learning to endure the pain. I have learned that if I don't feel the pain, I am not moving the leg enough. The more pain I feel, the more I'm trying to bend the leg and more my knee will bend. This reminds me of repentance. Repentance is the painful part of the process. We need to go through this to correct the behavior that has caused the sin. That we need to lean into God for this correction to last. Repentance is not when you cry. Repentance is when you change. Repentance is a life-changing part of confession. The process of repentance is the process of becoming free. Susan, what does Scripture show us about the right response to sin? So I just talked about David and his wrong response to sin, and it turns out that he's also an example of the right response to sin because he had a complete reversal in how he um, dealt with his sin. And in 2 Samuel 12, uh, the scripture tells us that God sent Nathan the prophet to David. And so just as he had with Adam and Eve, he comes looking for David in the midst of his sin. David wasn't turning to him, but God came looking for David. And he's looking for us today, even right here in the midst of wherever situation we, whatever situation we find ourselves in. And the prophet Nathan, he tells him a story that appeals to David's shepherd's heart. It takes him back to a time where his heart was purer, where he began out in the fields uh, being a shepherd, looking over sheep. And through this story, David is able to see that he used his royal authority to take what was not his for the taking. And David, he says those three words that define what confession is. He says, I have sinned the I in it, the ownership of it, that he's not blaming other people. He's not blaming Bathsheba or the situation or anything else. He's taking responsibility that it it was him and he did it. Um, And he also calls it sin. He's not trying to use a, a lesser term like I made a mistake or I made a little fault or an error. He's using the S word, a word that increasingly in our society we We don't use, um, but he sees the gravity of it all of a sudden in this story that Nathan says, and he he repents. Um, And David, he, you, you get the sense in Psalm 51, which is the psalm of repentance, that he has this godly sorrow that is talked about in 2 Corinthians 7, 9 through 11. It says that godly sorrow works repentance, but worldly sorrow works death. And in this um, psalm that he prays, it's his prayer of repentance. You see a sorrow about what he did wrong. And David recognizes that he sinned first and foremost against God. 
that, you know, yes, there were lots of people who were affected by his sin. Uriah and his lineage and the, the men who died in the battle and their families and all, all of that. And yes, that was all, it's all part of the process. But first and foremost, he sinned against God. And he says this in Psalm 51, verse 4, Against thee, thee only, have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight. And it's very interesting in 2 Samuel 12, um, verses 9 and 10, that God, in, in uh, talking to Nathan about this whole thing, and Nathan talking to David about his sin, that you see how personally God took this sin of David and how he was personally offended by it. In verse 9, it says, Wherefore have you despised the commandment of the Lord? to do evil in his sight. In verse 10, it says, why have you despised me? Um, and, and so it just, it just points out that God, God is offended. He's, he, he takes our sin personally. And David recognizes this in this moment where he recognizes his sin against God. He also recognizes that his sin is fundamentally an issue of the heart that sin hardens our hearts. And repentance is this process of getting our hearts soft again so that we are responsive to God and we can hear his voice with greater clarity because sin clouds and sin mars and sin distorts so that we don't see things clearly. And so in Psalm 51, 6, he says, you desire truth in the inward parts. In the hidden parts, you shall cause me to know wisdom. So again, it's about the heart. It's about where he stood in his heart. And he appeals to the mercy of God. And this is the right response to, to sin, to cry out for mercy, because God is merciful. And we see that again in the beginning of Psalm 51. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions. My sin is ever before me. And God gives grace. And I'll get into that in more detail in a moment. But I think it's also very important for us to recognize that our repentance and our forgiveness does not necessarily mean that the consequences of our sin will be erased. And we see this very dramatically in the life of David, that this sin demarcated his life very clearly. That up until this sin, he was on an upward trajectory, and he had tremendous success, and God was like blessing everything he did. And after this, um, Nathan prophesied, the sword is not going to depart from your house. And he was admired with so much trouble, internal trouble with his family and external troubles. And yes, again, forgiveness was there and mercy was granted, but those consequences continued to play out throughout his life. There's a quote that I remind myself of often. It says, sin will take you further than you want to go. It will keep you longer than you want to stay. And it will cost you more than you want to pay. So when we confess, what is God's reaction to that? This is the best news of all. 
And one of the first things is that the forgiveness that God gives is immediate. In 2 Samuel 12, 13, it said, And David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. And it was just in the same phrase. It was just like God was spring-loaded, just waiting for, for David to admit his sin. And then he was just ready right away with that forgiveness. Um, in Psalm 32, David talks about this whole forgiveness process and what he went through and what um, he put himself through by not asking for forgiveness, waiting over a year for that whole process to happen. In verse 3 of Psalm 32, it says, When I kept silence... Before I confessed, my bones wasted away through my groaning all the day long. For day and night, your hand of displeasure was heavy upon me. My moisture was turned into the drought of summer. Selah, pause and think calmly about that. And so what we see from these two verses is that sin is empowered by silence. And David was miserable even though on the surface he felt like he had dealt with his sin and covered it over as best he could, and his heart, his own heart, you know, worked against him to convict him of, of sin. And then verse 5, I love this scripture, and this is out of the Amplified. I acknowledged my sin to you, and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, continually unfolding the past till all is told. Then you instantly forgave me the guilt and iniquity of my sin. Again, Selah, pause and calmly think of that. And then David is like he's admonishing us. You can almost hear that, that regret in his own voice, you know, for, for not doing this earlier. And he's admonishing this. For this forgiveness, let everyone who is godly pray. Pray to you in a time when you may be found. So we see from these two verses, grace and mercy are empowered by our confession. So there's not just instantaneous forgiveness that God gives, but there's a cleansing that he brings as well. And David talks about this again in Psalm 51, verse 7. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Verse 10, create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. In 1 John 1, 9, it says, if we confess our sins, what's the response of God? He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. All unrighteousness, every bit of it. We can be washed completely clean of it. And then I love Isaiah 1, 18, Come now, let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. It even gets better. God not only forgives instantaneously, he not only cleanses and washes us clean, as white as snow, but he also chooses to forget. He could remember, of course, but he chooses to forget about our sin. In Psalm 103, uh, verses 10 to 11, or 10 to 12, and this, of course, is the passage that Susan Hochstetler talked about a couple weeks ago and highlighted. It says, He is not, speaking of God, has not dealt with us after our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. As the heaven is high above the earth, so great is his mercy towards them that fear him. As far as the east is from the west... <laughs> 
so far has he removed our transgressions from us. I mean, how far is the east from the west? How far is the heaven above the earth? That's how great God's mercy, that's how great his forgetfulness is of our sin, because he chooses to do that. I also love Zephaniah 3.17. This is out of the Amplified. The Lord your God is in the midst of you. A mighty God, a Savior who saves. He will rejoice over you with joy. He will rest in silent satisfaction. And in his love, he will be silent and make no mention of past sins or even remember them. He will exult over you with singing. It's just remarkable. And it's also remarkable that God, he doesn't just forgive us because we are in dire and desperate need of it, it, but he delights in mercy. He delights in grace. And it says this in Micah 7, 18. This is out of the message. Where is the God who can compare with you? Wiping the slate clean of guilt, turning a blind eye, a deaf ear to the past sins of your purged and precious people. You don't nurse your anger and stay angry long, for mercy is your specialty. (laughs) That's what you love most, and compassion is on its way to us. I just love that. Compassion, the compassion, the mercy, the forgiveness of God is always on its way to us. You'll stamp out our wrongdoing. You'll sink our sins to the bottom of the ocean. Because of the cross of Jesus, the blood of Jesus, sin is not a problem for the believer. What is the problem is unacknowledged and unrepented sin that separates us from God. So it turns out forgiveness is not just instantaneous. He doesn't just cleanse us. He doesn't just forgive us and and forget about our sins, but he also restores us. And David talks about this again, Psalm 51, verse 8. Make me to hear joy and gladness that the bones which thou hast broken may rejoice. There's a restoration of joy that comes. And this is such a contrast from what David was talking about in Psalm 32, verses 3 and 4, where he says, you know, even my moisture was turned to drought, and I was groaning all the day long and miserable. And now he's saying, make me to hear joy and gladness again. Verse 12, restore to me the joy of thy salvation. Uphold me with thy free spirit. We have been focusing on the scripture's responses and God's response to our confession. Now we want to share a little bit about our own personal journey with confession and repentance in our marriage. And individually. (laughs) So um, Pastor Conrad has been talking a lot about um, this COVID-19 disruption being a time of resetting for us and uh, reprioritization and um, kind of going deep in our relationship with God, using it as this Kairos moment to really Um, have God change us and transform us. And I find that that's definitely been taking place in my life, and confession has been a major part of that. And so this is not just a message which we're giving. It's kind of what we've been living out um, for the past several um, weeks um, as we've been sheltering in place. 
And I find that I'm realizing that I've seen sins that I, I have been there all along, but I just haven't seen them in the light which with I've seen them at this point in time. Um, things like not being led by God, being led by my to-do list, being led by what I think, and the ways I've leaned on my own understanding, the ways that I've gone to other things uh, like chocolate and, and <laughs> comfort, you know, when I want comfort and when I want um, relief or when I want validation and, and the things that I go to that are not God. And it's a form of idolatry um, that, that the scripture talks about, that the first commandment is always the first commandment, which is we love God with all of our heart and all of our soul, all of our mind and all of our strength and so many ways in which I deviate from that. And one of the things that I love about God is that at any one point in time with all of us, there are just like a zillion things that are wrong. You know, the definition of sin that's used most often in the scripture is to miss the mark. And how many ways do I miss the mark daily, moment by moment? But what I love about God and his way is that he doesn't just bump, he doesn't bombard us with sin after sin after sin all in one fell swoop. I find that his approach is, is to target usually one thing at a time. There's, there's like one thing that I can tell through the spirit of God that he's putting his finger on in my life and saying, this is what I want you to pay attention to and attend to right now and what, what I want you to repent of. And I just love that about God. And I've learned that the difference between conviction and condemnation is very important for me to keep in mind all the time. Um, conviction, it comes from God. It's from the Holy Spirit. And it's very specific, I find. And so when I'm receiving conviction from the Holy Spirit, it will be in a, in a specific location, and, and I can tell the, the date and the time in which it occurred. For example, like when you were in Costco the other day, and you said this to John, and you were doing this, and, and it was really disrespectful. And I know exactly what happened. I can pinpoint it in my memory. Um, and it's about behaviors that we, we do that are wrong. And so then I can repent of that specific instance. And then it's just gone. And then I, I repent before uh, I tell John and ask him you know, to forgive me for that because I, I don't want to be disrespectful. Um, and then it's gone. And you're free. And you, you experience that renewal of, of joy and things getting back to normal um, that, that you had before. Um, condemnation is really different. Uh, condemnation is from the enemy and it is a bombardment. It's a bombardment with like everything in the kitchen sink that you've ever done wrong in the past, present, future. And it's very vague. It's very generalized. You can't really pinpoint anything specifically. It's kind of like you're all wrong. It's highly related to shame. And shame, it's not just about you did something wrong. Shame is about you are wrong. Everything about you is wrong. And that's what the enemy brings. That is not of God. Um, and it says very clearly in Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. And I love that. <laughs> that, that that is not from God. And we can reject it when it comes because that's not what God gives us. I'm learning that confession before God is um, it's important for me to take time to receive it, um, to not just you know, confess and then just run off, but to just say, God, 
I receive the forgiveness that you have to offer and just renew my mind of the fact that he's already forgotten about it. The moment that I confess, it's gone as far as the East is from the West. Um, for me, I've found that it's really important to take the time as well to forgive myself um, because forgiveness, when I fail to forgive myself, I'm basically saying that, God, your forgiveness isn't good enough. I have to beat myself up um, try to make amends as if the cross wasn't enough. And of course, it's finished. It is enough. <laughs> um, one of the most beautiful things that I'm learning about confession is that it is a pathway to intimacy with God. That when I allow God to see me without those fig leaves that I've put on to try to cover myself, when I remove the mask, when I come and just say, here's me, here's me in the midst of the things that I'm most disappointed in myself about, that I feel most ashamed about, and I allow God to love me right there, right in the midst of that, then I realize there's no place that I can't receive the love of God. Because if he can love me there, <laughs> he can love me anywhere. And that is one of the most beautiful things about confession, that it opens the door for such intimacy, connection, a deep calling unto deep with God that I've not experienced in, in other um, contexts. Um, we've been focusing a lot here about the vertical, and rightly so, um, but confession, it turns out, also has a horizontal dimension to it. Um, of course, we confess before God for forgiveness. And again, 1 John 1, 9, if we confess um, our sins, he, God, is faithful to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There's a parallel scripture in James 5, 16, though. It says, therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other that you may be healed. And here it's not talking about forgiveness of sins or cleansing of sins. It's talking about healing. And there is a process that happens that as we open up to people that are trusted, these are not, it's not just anybody that you would do this with, people that you can trust their heart. Um, as we open up and confess our sins to each other, there is a healing that happens. Many times the enemy, um, he can blackmail us. When we haven't told anyone, he blackmails us with the, the lie that if people knew what you did or this sin or that sin, nobody would love you. Everybody would be against you. Everybody would turn their backs on you. And in this process of divulging our sins to each other and finding grace and forgiveness from each other, it's just a way to shine light in dark places, and the enemy can no longer have any victory or any play in that because light has come, <laughs> and we recognize that forgiveness is received not just from God but from others, and there's a, such an immense healing that I have benefited from um, from this process. We are finding in our marriage that confessing to each other is critical to creating a deeper understanding of an intimacy between us. An example of that is we make decisions very differently. I am fast and decisive, while Susan is slow and hesitant 
to make a decision. And this has created conflict. And so I had needed to confess to Susan that I was becoming frustrated because I felt that she wasn't being engaged in the decision-making process. Come to find out that she was getting frustrated because I was pressuring her to make a decision quickly when she wasn't prepared for that. And so as we were able to talk through this and understand each other's viewpoints, we came to an understanding and realizing what each of us need to make those decisions so that we can work together. And so this confessing has opened up a whole new realm and saying, okay, what other areas are we need to find a newer way to understand and work together? So in closing, not only does confession and repentance bring God's instantaneous forgiveness, his cleansing, his forgetfulness, um, and restoration, but there's also a transformation that it brings about as well. Um, several years ago, I read this book called Repentance, The Joyful Life, um, and it was very uh, game-changing for me because repentance and joy-filled were not two words that I normally put together, and it was really helpful for me in developing a biblical view of confession and repentance. And uh, she says this, it's by uh, uh, Basile, Mother Basilea Schlink, who, read, who wrote the book, The Joyful Life. And she says, it's almost incomprehensible how much new divine life is born out of contrition and repentance. All true joy, all power and authority in our ministry for the kingdom of God depends upon whether we live in the blessed state of repentance weeping over our sins, humbling ourselves before God and man as we admit our guilt. Therefore, let us give everything for this one gift of grace. <laughs> and this transformation process that she's talking about here, we see that in the life of David. That David, he had an abysmal record and failure in marriage. Uh, he had so many different wives. But after the sin with Bathsheba, we don't have any record that he took any more wives. He seemed to have devoted himself to Bathsheba. He was also an abysmal failure as a father, um, as a parent. He was passive. He didn't intervene in his kids' lives when he should have. And after this sin with Bathsheba and giving um, birth, Bathsheba giving birth to Solomon, he seems to have poured himself into Solomon. And Solomon even talks about in the book of Proverbs that he was trained by his father. And so it's a turnaround in, in David's life, in his parenting, in, in his marriage, in his heart. His repentance, that Psalm 51 that I've mentioned so many times, it, it changed him fundamentally. Um, and it's just so amazing to me when I think about the fact that God could have chosen any of David's wives to be in the lineage of Jesus. David had lots of wives. Like, why not Abigail, you know? But God chose Bathsheba to be in the lineage of Jesus. And it was like he was just saying, this is the kind of sin and seediness and sordidness and scandal that I died for. You know, in the lineage of Jesus, there's all sorts of that. There's Tamar, who had an incestuous relationship with her father-in-law. 
There's Rahab, who is a prostitute. There's um, Ruth, who is a Moabitess, and they were descendants of Moab, who um, had, came from Lot's incestuous relationships with his daughters. And then there's Bathsheba, to add to the list. And out of all that sordidness, seediness, scandal, there comes the righteousness, the holiness, and the perfection of Jesus Christ. And it's just the most amazing thing ever, that the blood of Jesus is all that and more. And so God is saying to us today, come now. Let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sin be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Our goal this morning is to help you see how confession is key to understanding that we will never meet the standard that God has set for us. That by confessing, we are humbling ourselves before God and each other. That God already knows our faults, our shortcomings, and still loves us anyway. That His gift of salvation has nothing to do with what we can accomplish on our own, but all about the grace that He provides to us through Jesus Christ. The question that I want to leave all of us with, including ourselves, is um, what's on the other side of our confession and our repentance? What does God want to release to us um, and bless us with that is just a prayer of repentance away? So Father, now we just come to you and we recognize that you are our Savior, God. We recognize how much we need you, how we need your mercy. And we just want to cry out right now for mercy, for grace that you, you so abundantly want to provide for us. And we want to receive it right now. Lord, I just pray that in our hearts, God, those places that you've been putting your finger on, God, that we know that your Holy Spirit has been targeting in our hearts that the areas that are not right, the areas that we need to surrender to you, God. I pray, Father, for that, for just a spirit of submission, a spirit of humility, God, to blanket us, God, that we would bend our knees to you, that we would bend our hearts, prostrate ourselves before you in our hearts, God, to say, Lord, save us. Save us from ourselves, God. Save us from the sin that could so easily beset us, but, but you come and you, you convict us and we repent and we are set free. Father, I pray for joy that's set before us, that we can see the joy, the, the freedom on the other side of our repentance, God. That we can see the, the freedom on the other side of you're cleansing us, God, that we can feel that cleanness, God, that is, is so supernatural, Jesus. <laughs> and that's what you offer us, the supernatural, amazing, abundant grace of God that comes freely, that flows freely from the cross of Jesus. 
Lord, we come against condemnation. We come against the work of the enemy, obstacles, self-righteousness, pride in our hearts that would keep us, God, from um, humbling ourselves before you. And Lord, just thank you for the restoration of joy, the restoration of our hearts, Lord, that have been hardened, that you would make them soft again so that we can respond to your touch that we can receive everything that you have for us and that there is nothing that we don't receive because we have not humbled ourselves in contrition before you. Thank you again, Lord, for the cross. Thank you for the sacrifice. Thank you for your hearts towards us and for your forgiveness. In Jesus' name. Amen. Join us in singing um, verses 1, 2, and 3 of the love of God. Mm -hmm. 